0: Please listen carefully. Okay, so I think we're pretty much ready. You good? All right, let's do this thing. All right. <clears throat> so, Grace, welcome on to the Heard It Here podcast. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Cooper Heard. It's a pleasure to be here with you, uh, Grace. Grace Rayner uh, of the Athletic. Uh, covers I, I would say the lead expert for Clemson football. Uh, Grace grew up in North Carolina, graduated from UNC, covered the Rangers and the Yankees for MLB.com before joining the Post and Courier down in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, where she first began covering Clemson football. Uh, saw on your, on your bio on the athletic a hoops head, apparently, college hoops head, is that so?
1: Yeah, I mean, having grown up in North Carolina, you—that's basically how you earn your citizenship. But um, yeah, I never understood like big-time college football until I moved to South Carolina.
0: Yeah. So, were you? Did you have a, an affiliation? I assume with UNC before you got there. Did you have family that went there, or just uh, always a fan?
1: I did. A family that went. Yeah, my dad went there um, for his undergrad and for med school. So he was like very you know he spent eight years in Chapel Hill so we would uh I, I grew up going to a lot of those basketball games as a kid
0: oh I can imagine see I my uh my, my dad's from like California my, my my parents are not from South Carolina so I don't have that uh we actually watched a lot of Gamecocks when I was growing up sort of you know the, the Marcus Lattimore clowny years
1: oh uh, sure yeah
0: oh yeah awesome team but uh nobody at Clemson wants to hear that <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a lot different though. I know, um, having, what was like the best, what's the best, what, so maybe just your favorite game that you went to as, uh, just, just one of the, your favorite UNC basketball games.
1: Oh man. Or just, you know, uh, favorite
0: memories you have, favorite players even.
1: Golly, I have so many. I mean, <laughs> I, know, I was tough. going I through, I was going through high school when Tyler Hansborough was there. So that was like every girl in North Carolina's ultimate crush. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I would have been, yeah, I would have been firmly in high school, yeah, as he was going through. So he was always a favorite. Um, I remember the the Duke game where Gerald Henderson bloodied his nose. Um, i trying to think what of my favorite game was. I don't know. There's just been a lot, but Tyler Hansbrough was a favorite. I loved Ty Lawson. I loved Danny Green. Really, that whole 2009 team that won it all was probably the team that I resonated with the most as a kid.
0: Yeah, no, oh, Ty Lawson was one of my, so I, I had just this weird affinity for, like, the 2012-13 the Nuggets, and Ty Lawson was their star. Oh, yeah! And I, I loved him for no, no real reason, he was just so exciting, so excited. it's a shame, sort of, what's gone down since, but, I mean, he was awesome in his heyday, so... Yeah,
1: he really was, just, he's just so fast, and, I mean... Point guards in general are quick and the point guards at UNC are always quick, but I don't know. I just I I'm with you. I loved stylistically how he played.
0: Yeah. So were you there um then? I'm not sure which years you were at Chapel Hill. Were you there for the Austin Rivers year?
1: I was. I was a freshman. I will never forget that moment. Yep. Um I was a freshman, and so at UNC, you know, the tradition is if Carolina beats Duke. Uh, you rush to Franklin Street, and um, you know you don't ever get tickets as a freshman to to UNC Duke. It's a it's a very heavy upperclassman thing. So uh, my dorm, I remember, was having a watch party, and I will never forget it. I had I had just bent down to tie my sneakers because I was like, all right, I got to get ready to run, <laughs> and then I looked up from tying my shoes, and he buried that shot, and I will never forget it. The whole room was just like, all right, well. <laughs>
0: Man, that's terrible. See, that's, I, I, I actually, I started, my first year at Clemson was the first title we lost. So, I mean, I guess, yes. I, I guess the point I was going to make is that I, I, I've i never really had any of those experiences. But, you know, I guess the first title would be the one where, yeah, it's just after a game like that, it's not, you're not angry. You're not, like, frustrated. It's just like, oh, well, huh, there's that. Especially, yeah, in a, yeah go those ahead. Those are the ones you remember. Oh, you'll never forget it. You'll never forget it. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, so I want to talk about a couple of the articles that you've written recently. As I mentioned, um, you write a lot, a lot of Clemson football at The Athletic. Um, One of your most recent pieces was about the Clemson defensive line. Uh, The first quote that really jumped out to me was the one you got from K.J. Henry, uh, the uh, redshirt uh, freshman defensive lineman. He was the quote uh, he, about Brent Venables talking about how he's much crazier in practice and it's not <laughs> even close. That's yes. just key. key Maybe like give me a little context on that. I think that's just so hard to fathom.
1: Yeah. Well, so after the BC game, I knew I wanted to write about the D line and, you know, obviously as anyone who's followed Clemson football knows there were, if there was a question heading into 2019 that Clemson, like, That was it. I mean, there was absolutely no close second in terms of question marks or or lingering topics at Clemson is what, you know, what was this D-line going to look like? And so, um, you know, we've seen them progress over the course of the season and we saw Venables, you know, he rolled that dime package out a lot at the beginning of the year, a lot of three down linemen. Um, he, we're starting to get more traditionally into four now. And so I just I knew I just kind of wanted to zero in on this group and and kind of figure out, all right, how did they get here? Like, this is a group that just had immense turnover and are still really holding their own, you know, with a, a bunch of guys that have little to no experience. So. Um, talking to KJ, you know we see we see Venables on the sideline going nuts. Um, we see his get back coach and all that stuff. But I just kind of wanted to know, like, okay, how intense is he like in practice, and what is it about this man that every single year he figures out how to? you know, cater to his personnel and, and figure this thing out. I mean, there's just no drop off every single year. They lose a million people and every single year. Venables figures it out. So that was kind of the inception of that quote was, I was just kind of asking KJ, like we see like Venables going nuts on the sidelines, but like, what is he like behind the scenes when he's trying to develop like this young defensive line?
0: Yeah, no, I really like that point you made about Venables being able to tool his, his schemes to his personnel. I think it's very often, it, it just in the world of sports, you have these big machismo personalities, and it's, you're going to do my way because my way has won games. Well, Brent Venables has won two national championships with his defense, and yet he's still tinkering, taking inspiration. I, I there, was, there was the whole thing about him going to visit Ohio State. Uh, sorry, not Ohio State, Iowa, uh, Iowa State, uh, sort of looking at their defense. He's just... Yeah. Yeah. No, do you want to talk about that for a second, actually?
1: Yeah, so I actually didn't know that he had done that, but I think it just kind of shows just how he is just so incredibly detailed and so precise, so um, meticulous. You know, he's he's we've heard Kayvon Wallace describe him as a mad scientist. <laughs> um, someone, I think it was, it might have been Niles Pinckney. It was either Niles or Kayvon. They were both talking about how much film he watches. I think it was actually Kayvon, and he was saying that Like, he is almost certain that Venables wakes up and watches film from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. Like, he thinks that he's watching it on his phone as he walks through the door. Like, this is a guy who is just always looking to learn. And so I thought that that was a really neat um, little anecdote that got into the press this past week. That, hey, here's a guy who's at the top of his field. He's arguably the best defensive coordinator in the country, he's making two million dollars. There's uh, loads of people that would want to come learn from him, and yet he's going to fly out and go pick someone else's brain to see what he can take from other schemes and other styles.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, the, the, the last point you made about him being at the top of his craft and and still going out to, you know, seek the tutelage of of other people. I wanted to ask you. I don't know if you've heard any stories uh yourself you've got any stories about this about Venables playing as the practice team quarterback I feel like that's one of of, like the best stories that people that aren't like Clemson people don't know about but it just makes so much sense with his personality
1: I love Brent Venables alter ego yeah so he this started I guess a few years ago when I think it would have started around 26 16, maybe around the time I think that Clemson won it all the first time. Um, but uh, let this, as the story goes, uh, Venables was just not happy with the way that the scout team was running things and just decided to hop in there himself. Um, his alter ego is a scout team quarterback named Jimmy Greenbeans. <laughs> and um, my favorite Jimmy Greenbeans story is actually um, from. It might have been either. I can't remember if it was a year ago or two years ago, but essentially Clemson, I think, was having a not great practice. And um, this was before the playoff and Jimmy Greenbeans was extra animated. And I think Cleveland Farrell was telling me that he had said something like, you guys don't want it. You know, you guys are, you know, you don't have the attitude that you need. Just kind of – questioning I guess their uh, motivation and so then Jimmy Greenbeans gets out there running scout team and Cleveland Farrell and Christian Wilkins just pancake him I mean just completely like just mm-hmm. knock him out and so that's probably you know can I just you can just see this going down like Venables on the one hand you know trying to amp his team up and 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 getting in their grits a little bit. And then the next play, his alter ego comes out, and Cleveland and Christian just destroy him.
0: I, I can see him getting up off the ground and, like, smacking him on the butt and be like, good play, guys.
1: Yeah, he, I'm sure he loved it. Oh, my
0: God. that That's, yeah, that's about the best story I feel like I could have gotten out of that. I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> uh,
1: I know. I don't remember all the details, but after we finish recording, I'll pull it up in my notes and email it to you.
0: Yeah, definitely do. Yeah, I guess... That's so. I guess that's pretty much all I had to talk about with Brent. But I, I just wanted to mention since I had a few questions about him. Have you seen those like Dabo, Dabo and Brent twenty twenty shirts around campus?
1: Or, no, I haven't.
0: Oh my goodness! The last few Clemson games I've gone to. So I, I've got my younger brother and sister at Clemson now. So we still go up to a bunch of the games. But all the kids are wearing like these Dabo plus Brent twenty twenty election shirts.
1: That's hilarious. Oh, uh, it's
0: great. It's great. My, my my dad loves it for some reason. Um, That's
1: hilarious.
0: Yeah, it's great. Let's move on, though. Let's. So I wanted to talk, you mentioned earlier about how Clemson has begun to shift more to using four-man fronts, traditional four-man fronts. A lot of that, I know, was in this past game for Boston College, specifically given those huge running backs, A.J. Dillon, and I, I can't remember his backup's name, but Those guys are really big. What are the biggest factors going forward in whether we are going with a three- or four-man front, would you say, on just a game-to-game or even drive-to-drive basis?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is going to depend on personnel, like you just mentioned. I mean, BC was a really good rushing team coming in. A.J. Dillon was the second best running back in the country in terms of yards per game. It was just very, with BC, it, as you know, it's like if you can stop the run, you win the game. So um, I think that was a large part of it. But I think it'll depend on sort of who's on the other side. But also, you know, I think we're going to start seeing more of this because you're see, we're seeing this D-line grow up. And that was something that Venables kind of used as a motivational thing back in fall camp. He was saying, look, I don't I don't have to run four-man fronts, like, I'll run dime, you know? I mean, Clemson has been very, very vocal about the fact that they love their back seven. They think that this is the best back seven that, Dabo thinks it's the best back seven that he's ever had, Um, which would, you know, speaks for itself given that he's, you know, in year 10 now. I think that we, we saw it to begin with as a product of Venables just catering to his strengths, catering to that back seven, the experience there. But now that we're seeing, you know, Tyler Davis grow up right in front of us, Niles Pinckney is playing some of his best football. Justin Foster has really stepped up in Xavier Thomas's absence. Uh, Logan Rudolph's real gritty, real physical. I think that we're going to start to see it more. Um, and it's not that I don't, I don't think it was that Venables didn't trust those guys. I think it's just that he loved his back seven so much that it was uh, kind of a win-win situation to cater to a strike snare there. But now that these guys are coming along, I think we will see it more.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I I was that's that's really interesting that Dabo said it's the best back seven he's had. Um, I, I would say it's not particularly outrageous though. I think it makes a lot of sense. This those yeah. safeties especially.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got four safeties that I think could all be co-starters when you look at Tanner Muse, Kayvon Wallace, Denzel Johnson, Nolan Turner. I mean, those guys are. Are playing some really good football and Nolan we kind of saw we kind of saw this coming I feel like with Nolan last year especially as he gets his first interception in the Cotton Bowl but I mean you can rotate those guys in and out however you want and then you look at your corners and AJ Terrell is playing you know at AJ Terrell's level we we we've, we've known what he could do and then Darian Kendrick has been um, really consistent and really flashed for for a guy who did not play this position obviously before this year.
0: Yeah. No, Darion, especially Uh, Mario Goodrich has been really good as their third corner too. I think he, I I could absolutely. So I'm really glad that Darion has done so well, but if, if that had not happened, you know, if things hadn't gone as planned, I wouldn't be too worried with Mario Goodrich as our second cornerback. I guess that's the way I'd put it. Um,
1: Yeah. They built some good depth back there. They really have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, And that's sort of the strategy Clemson's always had, you know, it's, that they are really good at getting guys that will wait a couple of years by their time because they know when they're older and they're smarter and they're ready they'll be able to play they'll have an opportunity
1: yeah I mean we've seen this trend for a while Dappa plays tons of guys I mean it seems like every week he's playing 100 plus guys at home and all 72 on the travel roster so um, and then every year, I think one of the most interesting things that he does every year is when they're in the middle of bowl prep, which obviously the past four years has been college football playoff, um, they have a couple days in practice that are just solely developed developmental practices. You know, like the first and second team, the 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 veterans, they leave and, and they spend some time just kind of developing these young guys, bringing them along. And I always thought that that was so interesting that here you are in the thick of you know, potentially competing for a national championship and you're taking time out of your day to start developing the next year's team.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's certainly not something I would have expected. I bet a lot of that, though, is just how sort of self-driven the, the sort of senior and junior squad is. The the uh, more veteran guys, you don't really have to sit them down. I, I imagine they can go watch film on their own. They, they sort of have an idea of how to train and get better. That's part of being a senior at Clemson.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, by the time that you are, I would say by the time you're in your third year at Clemson, you kind of know the lay of the land, um, the expectations, you know, the schedule, uh, what's acceptable and what's not. Um, And I think we we see that, you know, Travis Etienne's in his third year and he is more of a leader than he ever has been. Trevor Lawrence, he's only obviously in his second year, but you know the expectations are pretty clear once you get on campus from day one and then you grow into that role as you progress.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned uh, Tyler Davis earlier, just kind of in passing. I wanted to ask about him. Was there maybe, obviously he's been a revelation, a true freshman, not even, so he was a, maybe, I believe he was maybe the 12th ranked defensive tackle recruit this year. Now he's starting for one of the best teams in the country. Was there maybe a moment or, you know, a particular interview with someone where you sort of realized this guy, Tyler Davis might be a force already this year?
1: Yeah, I would say spring practice. There were two players that we heard Dabo talk about more than anyone else in spring practice. And it was Joseph Ngata, the freshman wide receiver and Tyler Davis. Um, so I'm not surprised that we're seeing what we are. I mean, just the way that they talked him up um, so consistently every single time we talked to them, you know, and it just sounded like he was a guy that got in the film room really early and understood things very quickly. And, um, you know, I think I think one of them had said, I think one of the upperclassmen had said he showed up on the first day of spring practice and already knew exactly what to do. Um, so he's just a guy that, very, uh, cerebral and, and obviously has the athletic talent, but yeah, I, I would say spring practice is when we started getting this, this kid started to get on my radar in spring practice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I'm glad you mentioned Joan and Gata. I don't actually have anything written down for him, but he's, I, I I'm going to have to segue right quick. Cause I, I love him. He's just one of my favorite players. Have you, have you entered interviewed him?
1: We've only talked to him a few times. He's very, very quiet, but you can tell that he's really thoughtful, and he's a guy I've got my eye on. Just I think that there's more in store for him. Like I, I think, I don't know, it just kind of feels like Clemson might have something up their sleeve with him as we get into the postseason time.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, so I guess one of my <laughs> kind of nutshell conspiracy theories about Clemson is that I think they could have played Joe Angada, like, uh, not Joe um But Justin Ross, like sixth or seventh game of the season, and really gotten him, I think he would have been a star halfway through the season, but they maybe limited him, sort of, you know, they weren't um, sandbagging, they weren't hiding him, but not necessarily putting a ton on film, so that when they got to the playoffs, they had him as a wild card. And I think it really paid dividends in uh, both playoff games. So I, I think... It seems like maybe you're thinking a similar thing could happen with Joe Angada, which is really exciting to hear. That's actually what I was gonna ask is do you see it more coming this year or next? Um, that's that's awesome though.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't have like any and this is this is just my personal opinion. Like I don't obviously I don't have any like crazy inside info on what Clemson is doing with their playbook, but there just seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between how much he was talked up in the preseason and then now what has happened and that's that's not to say that he's playing poorly because he's not he's a freshman he's getting his legs under him and he's gotten out there and and made some good grabs and uh, by all means he very much uh looks and acts the part of someone who's you know you know gonna be next in this lineage of, of a very long wide receiver group but i don't know he, it just seems like i don't know i just think that it's possible that they've got some stuff that they've got some stuff maybe they're working on that like you said they haven't put on film and Maybe this is just my conspiracy theory, but I don't know. We just heard so much about him and then haven't really heard that much since.
0: Right. Yeah. So I think to me, it's, yeah, it's more the snap count and how much he's being mentioned by the coaches. It's not, it's not his play. His play has been awesome, which makes me, yeah, which sort of leads me to put the tinfoil hat on, do a little conspiracy theorizing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, that was good though. Let's Let's go back to Tyler Davis, though, for a second. So Tyler Davis, as you mentioned, uh, a force athletically. What really stood out to me, the first play, and sort of why I mentioned this, there was a play, I would have to go back and watch it, but one of the first couple of games where he was, uh, so there was sort of a run out to the left side, or it may have even been like a screen pass that got out, and Tyler Davis made the tackle, but it wasn't just like he participated in the tackle he was like the primary guy to make the tackle, like 15 yards down the field, all the way on the left side. i like, whoa, that's not our nose yeah, tackle. Yeah,
1: sure. It's
0: incredible. So it's, it's right, I think my, I, I maybe heard him once sort of compared to Aaron Donald in, in that he is not necessarily a 6'4", 350 pound defensive tackle, sort of the uh, Vince Woolfork behemoth type. He's more of just, he's a, he's a very powerful guy. Very quick, uh, can move in the open field for being a nose tackle. And it sounds like, as you're saying, just so smart, so able to pick things up.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's been funny over the course of the season listening to his teammates talk about him because it's like every time that we hear about him, there's some different nickname. Dabo started calling him Baby Dex after Dexter Lawrence because they, they do kind of look a little bit alike in the face. And then obviously they played the same position and, you know, all that stuff. So first it was baby Dex. And then it kind of evolved into, um, Sean Pollard was telling me in the, I guess it was in the spring, maybe it was in fall camp, that they started calling him fire hydrant because he was so hard to move. And he was just like, so, you know, he's thick and just difficult to move. And then they also have called him in that same vein, they've called him tree stump. So this guy, this, this is a dude that. You know, this is a senior offensive lineman saying this guy is really difficult to move and go up against, and I think that tells you all that you need to know because Sean Pollard, you know, he is—he's—he's he's not a noob. He's seen some some good D linemen in his day, um, and so if he's saying that this guy is one of the most difficult, then you you're inclined to believe him.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I'm I'm not surprised at all to hear that a lot of guys are talking about Tyler Davis. You know, even just he's he's a he's a superstar the Clemson vlog. Absolutely. Oh, I love
1: him on the vlog. He's
0: so funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, he absolutely just highlights it. The 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 clip of T. Higgins talking about him going on the jet ski at like fifteen miles an I hour. I
1: love that clip so much. <laughs> when he wanted to go on the boat so bad. Yeah, he's hilarious on the vlog.
0: Yeah, he's. Uh, I I I I love to watch him on there. But he. I mean, he's been incredible in the field too. He's definitely he's been awesome I, I wanted to ask so out of the um just out of these three backup defensive linemen uh out of jordan williams justin foster and kj henry just which of those guys do you expect to have the biggest role going forward and maybe just who do you see i guess just yeah who, who do you see as the having the biggest role within the team going forward in the latter half
1: of the season Um, I think I would say Justin Foster, just because we've seen sort of that exact thing happen. You know, Xavier Thomas has been out these past couple weeks with uh, dealing with a concussion, and it's, you know, been a lingering thing where they weren't quite ready to clear him. And so Justin really had to step up at Louisville at home against Boston College. Um, He was the guy that they said, all right, let's get you in there. And I think he played, I think Dabo said he played... 39 snaps um, against one of those two teams. I can't remember what it was, but my point being that his snap count was up. Um, But he's just a guy that, you know, Clemson has said all year long that they feel really good about their depth at defensive end, and they kind of feel like at defensive end it's a a strength in numbers type deal because they do have so many bodies they can rotate in and out. But I think that uh, you look at what Justin Foster has done these past few games, even he's clogging up the stat sheet and Dabo is saying that he's still not playing as consistently as he as he can and could, which is crazy to think that, you know, we look at him like, wow, this this guy played great. And Clinton is saying, oh, no, there's still much more there. There's a lot of meat on the bone. So I would go him for that reason. And also because we've kind of seen that come to fruition.
0: I think that's reasonable. Yeah, I think you. Yeah, I, I think Justin Foster played awesome the last couple of games, especially that Louisville game. That was definitely his breakout game for me. I mean, I was vaguely aware of him, but that was where he went from I know his name to I know, <laughs> I know his game. Uh, did not. I didn't mean to make that rhyme. I, I almost couldn't get through <laughs>
1: it.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. I, I. I. And I think those other two guys, uh, Jordan Williams and KJ, will certainly get playing time, and we've seen just how deep they go with the line, especially in games that aren't particularly close. Yeah, I I think Justin Foster could absolutely make a... And that's sort of why I asked that question, is because I think those two guys will play well as backup defensive linemen, but I think Justin Foster, it's going to be more than just being a good backup. He's going to be, um, I guess, the basketball equivalent of like their sixth man is sort of what I'm envisioning.
1: Yeah, I think you can look at him... Logan Rudolph and Xavier Thomas essentially as co-starters and, and we you know I mean Justin had started I think four games maybe before Xavier got hurt so like he's been in the starting mix before we just haven't seen him have to consistently hold down the fort like he did with Xavier out.
0: Let's, let's move on to the, the Boston College article. I was going to ask you something about Xavier Thomas, but I actually had that down in this article, so I'll save that. Post-Boston College article, though, uh, this was sort of about Dabo's takeaways from the game, yours as well. It seemed like, obviously, probably the biggest story of that game was DeAndre Overton's offensive explosion. Three receptions, sure. three touchdowns. Um, and I would say all of them were, I mean, none of them were gimmies. None of them were walk-ins to the touchdown, um, 120 yards, too. So I believe the first, it was like a 20-yard, then a 60-yarder, then a 40-yarder. He had a really good game. It was really impressive. Um, and I guess I, the question I wanted to ask you, so I think DeAndre Overton seems like the type of guy that the NFL could make good use of um, that maybe hasn't shined as much at Clemson as he could have. Uh, Deion Kane would be my go-to example. Uh, Martavis Bryant even uh, further in the past, but what would you think it would take for DeAndre Overton to turn into a sixth or seventh round caliber draft prospect?
1: You know, I think the biggest thing for him is continuing to prove to teams how versatile he is. I mean, you look at DeAndre and I would say he's, I would say he's probably the most versatile wide receiver on on the team because this is a guy that can play both outside spots. And obviously we saw him in the slot when Amari Rogers was hurt, still dealing with his ACL to open the season. So um, we saw a side to him uh, Saturday against Boston College that was very quick, very explosive, kind of shifty in traffic. He certainly has the build, 6'4", you know, 2', whatever. Um, He definitely looks the part and – and has the frame of, you know, someone who maybe people expected to come in and be Clemson's next marquee nine man. But I think the way that DeAndre Overton makes his money at the next level is his versatility. That's my opinion.
0: That's you know, that's a really good point, and I hadn't actually thought of that. But you're right. It, it so I I think yeah, when you look at him, he does look like one of those guys in the vein of Mike Williams, of T. Higgins, just these big sort of high point receivers I think the maybe the biggest thing that hasn't come around for him he hasn't always had the best hands his catching can sometimes be somewhat inconsistent but you're right it really is the versatility that does it for him it's that ability to play in the slot it's the fact that he can score like three of his touchdowns on on speed agility plays as a 6'4 guy That's, that's, you're right. That is, that is incredibly versatile. I'd never really thought of it like that before.
1: Yeah, he is fast. And, um, and I think as a whole, Clemson really, Clemson's receivers across the board, I think this year have been really good uh, with yards after the catch. I mean, that group is, that group is a group where it's like, if you don't show up and you don't perform, I mean, you're gonna be put on the spot pretty fast. I mean, there's just so much talent in that room. In that wide receivers room that Jeff Scott has, and so you gotta basically bring it every day. And by all means, DeAndre's a guy who could totally be a starter at, at, a, at another school. Um, he's just in maybe one of the most competitive wide receiver rooms in, the, in America.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could even stretch that and say one of the most competitive, you know, in recent history. Sure. I mean, it's. I think it's. I think it would be difficult to overstate um, just how competitive it is. But I, I, you mentioned the impressive ability that Clemson receivers have shown to generate yards after the catch this year, which is a perfect segue into my questions about Amari Rogers.
1: Yeah. He's been the
0: master of that this year. Obviously, that first touchdown against it was Syracuse, right, where he had the. Maybe like a five-yard catch and just turned it up the sideline for an 81-yard touchdown. Um, could you tell me just maybe your account of reporting on the Amari Rogers injury and then the subsequent recovery?
1: Yeah, I mean, Amari's story is really remarkable when you actually sit and sit down and think about it. I mean, now it's at the point where he's been back for so long now. I think he came back might have been that Syracuse game or maybe even the week before. Was it the week before? Yeah. Okay, so he's been back for so long that you kind of forget. Like, this guy wasn't, you know, by all means, when you look at uh, normal ACL tears, you would think he would just now be sort of, you know, working his way back, trying to figure it out. I mean, at the time that he tore it, I don't think it was unreasonable for people to think he would miss the whole season. I mean, a lot of times, he tore it in, I believe, late March. I mean, a lot of times these things take nine months, so... For Amari to come back in basically five months and some change is is kind of a medical marvel. Like, I think someone at some point should study his body. Like, (laughs) it's just, I've never seen anything like it. But um, I will say, too, that he is just incredibly diligent. And he's a guy that, you know, you would always see working um, on his rehab or working with punt return or working on the jug machine. um, Kind of as the last guy on the field during uh, fall camp, spring practice. I mean, he's just you know, Clemson coaches rave about his mind and, and how cerebral he is, and but, but that's one that we can really see too, you know, I mean, a lot of times we don't see the behind the scenes, but it just feels like all the time Amari is one of the last ones out, so for him to be performing at the level that he is, is remarkable, I think there's an argument to be made that he's even faster, um, I think it speaks to his confidence that he, you know, is cutting and you know juking people and really holding nothing back um on on that knee and and we're seeing just how shifty he is i swear he i had like hunter renfro flashbacks this past weekend just seeing him you know he's he just so low to the ground and just so fast
0: yeah no you know what i was watching the uh the oakland texans game with uh all the clemson guys in it and hunter renfro yeah. had his, did you see it hunter renfro had his first nfl touchdown
1: I did see it, it yeah. Awesome.
0: Good for him. Oh, oh yeah, great for him, but you know, I saw it and I was like that man, that gives me Amari Rogers flashbacks. That's that's what level it's at, at this point. They yeah. they really are. They have a very similar game.
1: Yeah, they do. They do. And it's you know, I think Amari's uh, build and his frame is perfect for that slot position now and you know, if you're looking at people who Someone was going to have to try to replace Hunter Renfro, and that's a, a really hard task to do. But I think Amari, with his skill set and just his size, uh, was was easily the most logical candidate to, to hop in there.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's really it's hard to underestimate just how incredible his recovery has been, um, and not just to come back to come back and produce at a high level so quickly. I mean, I, I I'd be stunned if he's not getting drafted in the second round at the very least after this year. I mean, that's it. It really has just blown me away. Um, do you maybe get a sense? It maybe it sounds like he's always been a leader, always had just a very um, impressive demeanor about him. But have you sensed maybe a an even new level of respect for Amari amongst his peers and maybe the coaching staff as well after this recovery?
1: Yeah, I mean, Amari. Amari is a guy that has always been, at least from my vantage point, has always been incredibly well-liked, very well-respected. But I think now um, he's just been the poster child for diligence and perseverance and attacking his rehab in the way that he did. You know, Clemson coaches can now point to him and say, hey, be like Amari. You know, this is a guy that was extremely precise in his rehab. And they've said it before. I mean, they they think that Amari trains and acts and carries himself like a pro. And so now given what he has done and, and how quickly he came back and the results that he's now having, in addition to already being super well liked, he he can now be the example for, you know, everyone else across the board is, hey, look at how hard he worked and, you know, go try to be like Amari.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, so it's not a huge surprise that he's got that professional attitude. Um His father, uh, for those of y'all who aren't Clemson fans, was uh, T. Martin, uh, star quarterback for Tennessee. Amari was raised in that environment, but I thought it was really just super telling. It might have been uh, your piece about Amari uh, where there was a quote uh, T said, like, after three months, Amari was back jogging, maybe even less than three months, and his father was blown away by that. I mean, truly, I think the work ethic is what's most impressive out of all of this
1: yeah I mean a lot of it is like, okay, Amari is probably genetically inclined in a way that a lot of us might not be, um, but he had to put in the work too, and he had to stay the course and be patient and understand when he could push and when he couldn't. and I know he was chomping at the bit to you know get back even earlier than than Clemson led him. Uh, but yeah he he deserves a ton of credit for the way that he handled himself.
0: Right, it's not all just about passion. It's about discipline as well. Yeah, that was that was really insightful. Do you uh, just a couple more uh, topics to hit? So I want to talk a little bit about the O line, the offensive line. Obviously, Jackson Carmen on that left tackle spot. He's a sophomore now, but the other four guys. Um, you got John Simpson. You got Sean Pollard, Gage Servanka, and Tremaine Ancrum. All those guys are seniors. What has it been like having such a just such an experienced group? What what level of cohesion have they has that led to? And has there has anything opened up for the offense having an offensive line like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that with uh this particular O line, I mean, Dabo was saying that was another group going into the season that Dabo was just raving about. I mean, this group is really experienced and. Um, Jackson is the only guy on this line that is the starter that's not classified as either a senior or a graduate. I mean, John is a senior, Sean Pollard is a senior, Tremaine's a senior, and Serbenka is a graduate. So this is a really experienced, really veteran O-line that just, you know, it doesn't doesn't take much to, to get Travis Etienne going, but when those guys can create a hole for Travis, it's basically a game over for the opposing defenses, I think. I, was, I have been a little bit surprised at the penalties. I think that they've been a little um, sloppy at times, maybe a little undisciplined at times. But Dabo had even said after the Boston College game that it was nice to kind of see them cut some of that silliness out and, and get to work. But yeah, this O-line, I mean, across the board, obviously, O-lines don't get a lot of credit. Uh, but this Clemson offense is rolling pretty good and, and those guys obviously are yeah, where that yeah starts. and I'm
0: glad you mentioned the penalties because that's I, I wanted to lead into that um it's actually so for me it definitely came to a head uh, in the North Carolina game the super tight game um would you say so I and I actually I guess it looks to me the past three games as if the penalties have not been shored up per se but certainly cleaned up to an extent. Um, Would you, I guess, first, would you agree with that? Uh, And second, who do you think is most responsible for sort of recovering from that North Carolina game?
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I I think Clemson had three penalties um, for 20 yards, I think, against Boston College, and none of them were on the O-line, which I thought was a huge mark of progress because at the midseason, you know, the Athletic had all of us do midseason report cards. And um, I think seven games in, the O-line was responsible for like almost 50%, if not a little bit more than 50% of all of Clemson's penalties. So uh, certainly it is definitely something that you notice when it's happening and also something you notice when it's not happening, because that's just, that's just so crucial and so important. And at North Carolina, they had some not just some penalties, but some really crucial penalties at some really awful times. And so I do think they've shored that up. Um, And I think that that's just a discipline thing. I think it's just a cohesion thing. Uh, Certainly, Dabo and Robbie Caldwell are not letting these guys get away with, you know, just silly mistakes they should not be making. So um, the bye week and, and heading into the second half of the season, I think, really, sort of got them ready to roll. And I think the North Carolina game, you know, put a little pep in their step a little bit. It's, you know, they those guys were lucky to win that game.
0: Yeah, it does always seem like Clemson needs a couple of just sort of uh, kick-in-the-butt games. Uh, the 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 sort of classic one for me will always be the uh, the NC State game a couple years ago where they had to have the missed field goal to go to overtime and win. Yeah. That, that was just, you know, that, that was the pinnacle of it. But Clemson – And I mean, you know, I I think to an extent, so if you win a game like that, I bet Dabo was not particularly upset that they had the experience against North Carolina that they did. I think you have to have a close game like that every once in a while to sort of sober you up and remind you, yeah, you're good, but you're not, you're not, you're not perfect.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, these games, you know, every year it seems like they have either a loss or a almost loss that. Uh, wakes them up a little bit and sort of puts them into foot on the gas mode as they head down the stretch.
0: I guess you could almost call it Syracuse last year, though. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, obviously extenuating circumstances with the quarterback situation, but uh, yeah, I mean that's I, I'll never forget that game. I, I was I was in the student section when ETN ran that last last touchdown, and that's been that's that's like one of my most vivid memories of Clemson football. was just amazing but that was obviously kind of a turning point for the tigers um a little bit different because you had trevor lawrence taking it over as the quarterback but i mean it's it's just um so i guess in 16 it was the pit game it was it was pit with uh, james connor and ah, nate peterman their quarterback it was james connor i don't know
1: i wasn't on the beat at that point maybe
0: oh that's right right yeah, but um, so it, it was like a 42-41 loss. It was like the same time, too, like seventh or eighth game in the season. So a little later, but that has just been a peculiar Clemson trend. So the last thing before I get you out of here, as I mentioned, I wanted to just ask you about Xavier Thomas. He's been out the last two games in the concussion protocol. Uh, you reported he uh, – that happened with – I don't know if it was like – a, a Uh, if it was scrimmage or just like a one-on-one was versus uh, up against John uh, Simpson, right. Just kind of got knocked.
1: Yeah. Dabo. Yeah. Dabo saying he, John got him pretty good. And John Simpson's a big dude, so I can understand why, how that would hurt.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. So obviously if, if, if there's any doubt, um, it's certainly the right move to sit Xavier Thomas. This is a guy, first of all, um, anyone that has a concussion, you should be, very careful with but I mean you know he's a guy that you don't need to be rushing back he's not hurting for playing time he's not needing to come back and fight for a role so it's not particularly shocking they held him out for a second game I guess I just wanted to ask you do you have any insight on um, if there have been any setbacks or is it just you know we're holding him out to be safe is there any is is there any reason for concern? I guess would be the way I'd put it.
1: My understanding has has been that it's just been precautionary. He wasn't quite ready. Um, I think that I think if I read it correctly, I think Dabo said on Wednesday night that um, you know the plan was for him to dress out, be ready, maybe go through pregame warmups, but hold him because. Hold him if they can, given that this is, you know, this is a game they're probably going to win with Wofford, and there's no reason to to rush that. But I, I do think that he was back in full pads this week, um. So I don't have any reason to believe, it. like to me, it sounds like he's progr- he's moving forward and he's progressing forward. So, um, I haven't heard anything about any setbacks behind the scenes or anything like that.
0: That's good to hear. And and there's certainly so I think you can point to, uh, I, I think it was. It wasn't last year. It was two years ago. Dexter Lawrence had sort of some underlying injuries. And I, I wasn't um, – I, I, I'm not sure if that was ever a real serious condition. It sounded like it was more, you know, he's got some la- uh, lingering injury stuff. It's not serious. He could play, but we're going to be careful and uh, take a lot of precautions with him. That just seems like the Clemson thing. You know, they're going to take care of their guys. Um, they're, they're not going to take any risks. So that's good to hear, though. Just, I guess, last thing, cap it off. How impressed have you been overall with Clemson's play this year? And maybe just give me one or two guys that have really just blown away your expectations.
1: Um, Tyler Davis is one, for sure. Um, He's just been, you know, we talked obviously a lot about him. Um, Travis, I think, you know, I think the big thing with Travis was everyone was like, okay, is he going to sustain what he did in 2018 because he had just a monster sophomore season and you wondered um, like a little bit with Trevor like is this something that he can repeat and I've been incredibly impressed with Travis these last few games as he's sort of gotten his footing again and they've given the ball to him a little more intentionally in some of these designed runs Um, so not that that one surprised me or exceeded my expectations but I do think that there's a lot to be said for maintaining some consistency coming off of a, a ACC player of the year campaign last year. Um, and then the last guy I would say would be Isaiah Simmons. I mean, I think Isaiah, you can make an argument that he's playing the best football in this entire team right now. And if you're looking at Clemson, all Americans, um, I think he has to be at the top of your list right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that great list right there. Um, Isaiah, especially Isaiah, as you said, has been playing so well. Um, he could easily be a top 10, top five draft. pick. I mean, he's, he's going to get paid. Uh, that's for sure.
1: Yes, he is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just a couple of names I wanted to throw on that list. Lynn J Dixon. I've been really impressed. Sure. Yeah. He's sort of, uh, you know, he was, I guess, second in line, um, coming into the season, but obviously Darian Rencher was right there as well. He's definitely solidified himself as the clear second string. And, you know, hopefully the starter going into next season it gives, gives you a lot of hope at that position going forward. I think, as we mentioned, Joe Angata has been really good already. Yeah, Darian Kendrick—he's another good one to mention, having switched from wide receiver to cornerback over the spring. Yeah, I, th- I think that's—and then the offensive line as a whole. Oh, you know the other one I want to mention—the linebackers, James Sculley and Chad Smith.
1: Sure. Yeah, they've been really good.
0: Yeah, and, and, they don't get I,
1: talked about a time, but they've been really good.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one that definitely would have uh, been more surprising. I think. I think. I, so, I mean, you would know better, but I, or at least I guess my thinking of it was the linebacker core was going to be weaker this year than last, at least. Uh, and I don't think yeah, that's, this is- I don't think that's been the case at all. I think they've been great.
1: Yeah, they have. I mean, Dabo was just saying this past week that it all starts with those backers, and yeah, they they don't get talked about a ton, but you got to be really on your p's and q's to be a linebacker at clemson because not only are you playing for you're playing for brent venables times two you know he's your dc and your position coach
0: (laughs) yeah no and those y'all who aren't huge clemson fans again let me throw this in there jake venables uh brent venables son is a linebacker at clemson right now Uh, if you ever see 15 on the field on defense that is him and that's another one of just the most amazing storylines that you know Brett venables being able to coach his son but not just coach his son like coach his son to coach the defense awesome
1: yeah it is cool seeing some of these um children of of the staff you know get in there and, and play at such a you know at the high level and you know a lot of them have national championship rings now
0: yeah i think that's all i've got for you i held you a little longer than i told you but thank you for sticking with me i really appreciate you coming on
1: Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, everyone, make sure you check out Grace's work, obviously, at The Athletic. If you're not subscribed, definitely do so. Do you have, like, a promo code or anything? Uh,
1: Yeah, there should be. uh, Most of the times, new subscribers can hop on there. You can go straight to the Clemson page and uh, click on any of those articles, and then it should give you a 40% discount code if you're new.
0: Awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so, obviously, all her articles she's writing, but there's also uh, your podcast, Protect the Rock, Uh, make sure to check that out anything else you're doing oh you know what Uh, maybe just give like a just just like outline the story you wrote today
1: sure yeah I wrote a story today about former Clemson cornerback Brian Mant in the early 2000s he was a big star at Clemson and was kind of an up-and-coming guy in the coaching world these past few years and then um He got hired at Wofford, which is why I wrote it this week in particular, given that these two teams are playing each other. But um, about three years ago, he had a a terrible headache that he thought was just, you know, maybe a routine headache that was a little bit more extreme than they had been in the past. And he um, essentially went to the hospital. And a week and a half later, he found out that he was paralyzed. And he has not walked since. So, um just a really devastating turn of events for a guy that was really up and coming in the coaching world. This was a guy that Jeff Scott was telling me, you know, he thought that he might work his way up to Clemson, you know, come come be a, a young on the rise coach at Clemson. And so, um, uh, just a, a terrible, horrible tragedy for Brian. But he is making really good progress. Um, he stood up for the first time by himself in May with no equipment, uh just some just the help of his Physical therapy trainer, so he is continuing to make good progress every day, and and that's encouraging to see because he just had such a bright future.
0: Yeah, yeah, and a phenomenal individual. Um, y'all go check out that story if you haven't seen it. Uh, there's, I believe there's a fundraiser link associated with that as well, right?
1: There is, yes. There's a GoFundMe, and it's in the article, and um, also you could just Google Brian Mance GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. Jeff Scott, I think, tweeted the link out today, so. Um,
0: there is a, there is a GoFundMe to to help these guys financially. Yeah, so we'll be sure to attach to that. Um, thank yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate this. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I love talking anything Clemson. Uh, I'll let you get on. You've got a radio show in fifteen minutes, so <laughs> I'm sure they now it was a good warm up, right? Definitely. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, serious. Thanks for coming on though. Yeah, I'll let you go. yeah we'll have to do this again soon thanks alright bye now you have a good one